On this episode of AvTalk, we welcome back John Ostrauer to the program to discuss the Q400 incident last week in Seattle. We review some of the other incidents over the past few weeks and recap fleet updates from various airlines around the world. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. Hello, Jason. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm okay. Just okay? I'm okay. Just okay. You know, fighting off a cold that's uh, uh, going around the family. So it's uh, one of those things where recording a podcast is an enjoyable activity when your throat feels like it's being, you know, scratched by a cat. Well, good luck with that. You have a cat though, so just make sure it's not the actual cat doing that. I promise it is not the actual cat. That's good. Yes, yes. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, how are you doing? I'm good. I don't have a cold yet, so. <laughs> I don't think I can give it to you from 800 miles away through a yeah, I literally just started sneezing 10 minutes ago, so ah, thanks. I have imaginary powers, I guess. Magic. This The world's worst superpower. <laughs> it really is. So this week was a- uh, It was a week. It was, I don't even- unusual is doesn't even begin to describe the extraordinary in the truest sense of the word. And so what we are going to do, we've invited John Ostrauer to come on the program and discuss the Horizon Air Q400 incident with us. And he'll be here in, in just a moment. A very, very quick recap is that someone stole a Horizon Air Dash 8 Q400 and made an unauthorized takeoff from SeaTac Airport in the Seattle area, and then it crashed. And so we're going to ask John to come out and talk a little bit more detail about what actually happened, and we'll get into a lot more than that and, and devote most of the program to this. And then we'll talk about, uh, well, there's a lot of other things going on, and including a lot of people who are, are hitting things on the ground. And so we'll get into that a little bit later. But we're going to bring in John now and really dive into the Q400 incident. So we'll be right back with John Ostrar. Welcome back. We are joined by John Ostrar now, editor-in-chief of The Air Current, a new aerospace publication. John has been on the program a few times, and we have asked him back to talk to us about the Q400 incident for a number of reasons. First of all, John's extremely knowledgeable about everything aviation. Two, it happened in his backyard, and he followed it in real time. So we have a, a, a rather unique perspective. John, welcome back to AvTalk. Welcome back, John. Good to be back with you guys. Let's jump in and talk about what happened last Friday evening in Seattle. It kind of all began with some social media posts, at least as far as my jumping into what was happening, that there were no departures at SeaTac. Arrivals were operating, but they weren't departing any aircraft, and, and we kind of went from there. And over the next 45 minutes to an hour, we kind of followed some things in real time, and then as the hours went on, we learned a little bit more. John, you were following it pretty closely, so I'd love for you to kind of walk us through what exactly happened last Friday. So I first became aware of that something was up Shortly after 8 p.m., I had a, someone flag a few interesting tweets that were coming out of SeaTac Airport, folks that were saying that there was a ground stop and there was something about an unauthorized something or other going on um, in the airspace over Seattle. And just to give you a, just a sense of orientation here, I live just west of SeaTac. 
I'm, there's a community that is on a hill down toward the water, toward Puget Sound. That is where I live. And that also affords me a great access to, to air travel, which was very much intentional for why, why I chose to live there. It also allows me to hear what's going on at the airport. And I, I went out on my, on my deck just to get a sense of, of what was, what was up. And the skies were silent. And on a summer evening at SeaTac, it you can you can hear it. I mean, I certainly you get a kind of a lively picture of of, of air travel in the Pacific Northwest in uh, the south of Seattle. It was eerily silent, so it was clear that something was going on, and something just didn't fit right. And then we got reports of F-15s having been scrambled out of Portland International Airport, where the Air National Guard for the region does NORAD missions. And really, you know, it became clear that that as people were listening to what was going on on, on public frequencies, that there was something really weird going on. And I and I sort of held fire on on reporting anything, primarily because number one, Twitter traffic is one thing. Hearing it with your own two ears is another. And then the third piece is, okay, wait, you know, what's really going on here? And what effectively became clear was that someone who was not supposed to be flying an airplane was flying an airplane not far from uh, Seattle. And what we came to learn was that it, in fact, was a stolen Bombardier-8 Q400 aircraft. That was a a Horizon Air aircraft that was taken for a, a joyride, effectively, as the first and final flight of Richard Russell, a ground service agent who worked at Horizon Air. And uh, tragically, he was killed during the flight when the aircraft appears to have run out of fuel. However, you know, it's not really clear, you know, whether or not that was that was the intent. But certainly he did say that he had no intention of landing the airplane. So it does ultimately look like it was him committing suicide. Obviously, the investigation is still ongoing. We're still waiting on those details uh, around around all of this, but certainly a an extraordinarily rare occurrence, if nothing else, but in a wild situation that this could even happen at the ninth largest airport in the US. It was absolutely stunning to have woken up and read these tweets in chronological order since I went to bed on the East Coast probably two, four or five minutes just before all this started happening. I woke up Saturday morning and I start seeing your tweets of there's an unauthorized takeoff. Oh, okay. Somebody must have taken like a little little Cessna or something, or someone's interfering with the airspace. And I kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I go, holy crap, this is uh, not what I expected it to be. And catching it up on it all in 10, 15 minutes, it was quite a story arc. I still can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. So I think the the word is extraordinary. I mean, because it's just the set of events and the sequence of events was so almost unbelievable listening to it in real time because they he was communicating with air traffic control and for quite some time. And so there, I think a large collection of people, myself included, following along with this story, hoping for the best ending, but I think at some point expecting it to end badly. And I mean, when you get word that two F-15s have, F-15s have been scrambled, and then someone who is at Portland International Airport posts the photo of the F-15 scrambling when full afterburner, I mean that that's kind of when it became real for me. And to hope that you know the, the gentleman flying the aircraft would would decide that landing was the best course of action, but then eventually that didn't happen. So we're almost a week later at this point, and it'll be a week later after uh, when when the episode airs. And so we're we're taking a step back and and thinking about you know the system that all of this is happening in. And, and John, you've posted a column about 
kind of how you're starting to think about it. And, I, and I'd like for you to, to kind of just give us a, an outline of, of how your, your thinking is, is operating around this. Well, you know, I think it's important to put this in two different kind of columns. And one column is much smaller than the other. There's the non-aviation column, which I think is very much applicable to, I think, many areas of, of life right now, which is the fact that this was a guy who needed help and didn't get it in time. And that is certainly something that we can say about a lot of people who suffer from mental illness and end their lives in suicide. And so it becomes a, a, a conversation in its own right about people who need help and the necessity of mental a treatment of mental illness and the, the destigmatization of that in our society. That's one big piece of this. The other piece of this is how the industry, how aviation responds when something like this, an outlier event happens. I mean, this was, you know, certainly we're all drawn so deeply back to 9-11 because that's kind of where our, our minds go when you think about a stolen airliner. And he turned south and not north. And, you know, certainly this was a guy who, you know, his intent appears to have been to have been suicide, not to hurt people, but obviously the having revealed this weakness in the system that someone on the inside can do this certainly evokes a lot of questions amongst the entire community about how we can be better how it can be improved and so you know looking at that you know you're also matched up against this reality of holy crap how do you prevent the one in a billion? I mean, no one if not that's the right number. Occurrence like this, when matching up the the realities of what it would take, either you know, either policy wise or technologically, or whatever, to prevent something like this, and you have to weigh all those considerations in terms of thinking about the idea of defense or security as a multifaceted thing, and nothing is as simple as a silver bullet, like oh, you know, put a digital lock on the airplane and only the pilot or the mechanic can use it. I mean, it's not nothing is that simple. So, you know, I, I think the the important thing we have to remember is that we have to ask these questions. And certainly the industry has to have, be uh, willing to, to, to have that conversation and to begin to answer how precisely you figure this out to make sure this doesn't happen again. And John, in your column, I think you make a very interesting kind of distinction between you know, determining how the system it can be improved versus we have to do something. Because I feel like anytime we get enough critical mass behind, we have to do something. We end up either doing the wrong thing or just doing something that doesn't necessarily reach the goals that we're trying to reach. And I think that, that your distinction among that is an interesting one. And I think it's an important one because finding where weaknesses are in the system isn't it's not always a, a, a physical response or, or a technical response where we have to put locks on something or we have to make sure that you know these policies are in place or something like that. And you know, we always and Jason, we've talked about this. I think in any episode, we've talked about uh, an incident or an accident where it's there's never one thing that goes wrong in an aviation incident. There, it's never one thing. And and I think. Jason, was it, it may have been you on Twitter that mentioned you know the Swiss cheese kind of you know aspect of it, where it all has to line up for things to go wrong. Right. Nothing in this industry happens as we all know it as as a single 
occurrence. There's always multiple things that stagger up together to become the incident. And here, I, I think it is no different than in any other circumstance. Yeah. And so, you know, taking that and moving it into what can we do to improve our system, I think is a much different mindset and a much more beneficial one than saying we have to do something. And John, you you mentioned, you know, mental health kind of, you know, dealing with that, we'll call it a column for now. But I, I was listening to, to an interesting report today as Many listeners probably know I'm based in Chicago, and there's something called a consent decree that was entered into between the the city and the city's police force and the federal government, or is be in the process of being entered into. And one of the the big components of that consent decree, which is a, a legal framework for forcing the the police force to do certain things, but it's also giving them more resources for mental health for officers. Because one of the problems in the city of Chicago, one of the you know largest police forces in the United States, is it a much higher suicide rate among the city's police force than other comparable police forces, and so dealing with you know the destigmatization of mental health, especially in industries that have been traditionally we can call them you know manly or macho or, or whatever, but walking that back to saying no, if you're not, if there's something that you need help with, you know, say something to to somebody and bringing those things out and providing those resources to people, you know, whether it's just talking to to a peer about, you know, some issues or, or having some kind of, you know, organizational structure that allows for that to take place. And, you know, the aviation industry certainly has had, I mean, a long history of, of kind of that ethos. I think there's a big piece of the puzzle there in moving that in a direction of, of better addressing mental health issues. You're right. But in this specific case, I'm not even sure an employee like this would have been on anyone's radar. We're not talking about a pilot or an air traffic controller or a mechanic or or any frontline employee that deals with mission-critical flight operations or even really the air aircraft operations itself. This was a ground services employee, and although, of course, they work super hard, probably not for enough money, you wouldn't really think that, that any mental state condition he might have had would end up with this result. I think that's a valid point as well. And maybe we should step back for a minute, and John, can you speak to a little bit more of, of what this gentleman's job was? I mean, I know there there was initial reports that he was a mechanic and, and that turned out to be incorrect. And so I think that, that kind of going over that would be a helpful thing to do. Yeah. So Richard Russell was a ground service agent. And a lot of what's involved in that, I, I, from what I understand talking to people who uh, have had the similar role, effectively, it's it ranges from everywhere from baggage handling to towing the airplanes. It's a really involved process. And obviously, Towing the uh, an airplane is very involved in terms of the technical the technical process there of you know obviously you're you're dealing with external power connections cabin interphones you know so you're you're, you're dealing directly with the airplane and on a literally minute by minute basis so it's you know it so you know in a lot of respects it actually is mission critical in terms of getting the airplane out and certainly if you're a tug driver and at SeaTac, I believe uh, when watching Q400 operations, you can see they, they start one engine and then they push it back and then they start the second engine. And essentially the the, the APU or cross power allows you to, to start the second engine, but that's after it's obviously disconnected from ground power. 
so, you know, but again, this is, again, all of this is done with, with the assistance of these ground service agents. So it, it is a, it certainly is a job that does require a lot of connection with the airplane. So, I mean, if we're looking at the system and we're thinking about, you know, we're asking questions about how can we improve the system. Let's talk about some of the things that that have been suggested so far that I think the three of us view as kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction. And one of the things that was suggested was some type of you know, physical lock on the airplane and deciding who has access to that. And that to me just seems kind of, you know, unworkable from a... Not a good idea. ...doing business standpoint, I mean, you know, making sure the airline operates. We saw so many kind of crazy concoctions that people were coming up with Twitter today, such as like, yeah, having like an RSA type keychain where you punch in a code into the FMS and that'll activate the aircraft but that's not likely or, or just a, a code like you have for the door or down to a physical key people are saying well trains you have a brake key so why wouldn't airplanes have a key and you don't want to ha- introduce a physical key that can a probably be copied and b ha- have a really just a logistical nightmare i guess well let's step back from that even even one one more level no pilot wants to have any part of their aircraft able to be disabled. You know, it, like having a kill switch or something that locks you out from access is not anything that you want anywhere near an airplane. And for the same reason why, you know, like, look, access to circuit breakers, for example. Oh, well, after, you know, MH370 is like, well, don't allow the transponder to be turned off. Well, you know, our pilot's like, well, you're not giving, you're not taking away the, you know, if I have a fire in my electrical system and I need to pull circuit breakers to isolate this thing, I do not want to have to worry about systems being locked out from my control. So, you know, and, and then putting something like this in terms of starting up the airplane, I mean, you know, if you have an electrical power, I mean, you, you could just, I can just go down to any number of very, very, very unpleasant scenarios where you would need to have the airplane at full control and a lockout system, it would just be very, very, very bad. And a lot of the reasons why airplanes don't have locks to begin with really comes down to this idea that if the system has to be activated with power on the airplane, you don't want to impede or affect any ability to get in and out of the airplane in an emergency evacuation. And you've also explained quite a bit that the complexity of how you start these things is, is more deterrent than really any physical uh, introduction would be. The keys are the expertise. And, you know, and ultimately, and look, if Richard Russell had been a mechanic, he would have known how to do this. The fact that he was a ground service agent is is merely a fact of, of this investigation that makes it that much crazier. However, he was authorized to be on that airplane as would be a mechanic, as obviously, of course, would be a pilot. So it's not just about about making sure that someone doesn't have access to it, but if that someone has the expertise, they are allowed to be there. So how do you, if you implement all of this, a mechan- if it had a mechanic done this, he or she would have had the ability to do exactly the same thing because they are authorized to be there with this quote unquote coding key that we have somehow invented that allows or prevents access to the airplane. So, you know, we're play, you're playing whack-a-mole with trying to make sure that ground service agents can't steal an airplane, but mechanics and pilots can. I mean, you know, what, like what is, what's the distinguishing factor here? Well, it's a person who, who needed help and didn't get it. And that, and that is a, that is and addressing that question is probably 
far more effective than, than trying to play, again, security whack-a-mole on a technological solution. Yeah. And I think we've gotten to the point where there's so much physical security around airports that what are you possibly going to add that's going to deter someone who has access to the aircraft? Like you said, there's nothing left you can do. And in my opinion, that's going to stop someone who has access to an aircraft from doing what they did. I think that in a lot of respects, aviation has a willingness, or I think that the, the community in general, in terms of its regulatory stance, always asks, okay, how can, you, how can this be prevented? And not just accepting that something is, is necessarily a fact of life. And I think that how you address that and how you have that conversation, I think, somewhat distinguishes aviation from a lot of other different industries in terms of how to fix problems. And I think that's something that I think is going to be very notable as things roll forward about how you answer these questions. I would like to shift gears a moment and, and kind of move over to one of the aspects of the system that... It didn't work because it's not designed to work like this, but it's something that I, I feel deserves a bit of discussion. And it's the calm professionalism of the air traffic controllers. Oh, this deserves a ton of praise. Throughout this incident or, or event or whatever we're calling this, for anyone that, that's already listened to the air traffic control recordings or for anyone who wants to, we will put a link in the show notes. I will advise that that you know, knowing the end of the story, it doesn't necessarily make it graphic, but I listener discretion is advised. But the professionalism of the air traffic controllers and dealing with the situation at hand, while also managing traffic coming into SeaTac, and also dealing with aircraft working around SeaTac at altitude on approach and the other controllers dealing with, you know, aircraft that were on the ground who had, you know, very little information about what was actually happening and trying to manage that situation. Because of course, you know, there's traffic stacking up on the ground at SeaTac and they still have to go somewhere because flights aren't departing. So the gates are occupied. They're still landing aircraft, so they have to put them somewhere. And that became a very, you know, a very stressful situation, both in terms of, I mean, we were seeing tweets from passengers going, oh, I'm stuck on the, the taxiway. What's going on? With very little information. And the air traffic controllers did, I think, a phenomenal job all around. I feel like that just needs a bit of acknowledgement. I could not agree more. It was, I mean, so I was listening to it in real time as it was happening. You know, a lot of, you know, I went back and listened to everything later on just to kind of collect everything from start to finish. But hearing it in real time was amazing because you could, you could literally hear on some of the frequencies. I was, I was listening on a scanner as well. And what you could hear was, you know, cabin calls that, you know, people telling, telling the, you know, the passengers, okay, well, Hey, we don't quite know what's going on. Uh, you know, we're just going to hold here and they're, you know, they're dealing with a situation. And then, you know, there was sort of like a, everyone sort of kind of knew what was going on, on on a lot of the the open frequencies, but no one said it directly, but all the while you're hearing the conversations between Richard Russell and the ground as it's all unfolding. And it's this, because, you know, I don't, I don't know whether or not the radios were set in a certain way before he took off, or if he set them this way, but certainly it allowed for for all of this to be broadcast um, on, on all of the major frequencies. So it was just this incredible uh, confluence of events. And you could, I mean, you hear in the background of these radio calls, you hear caution and warning horns going off, you hear terrain warnings going off. And, you know, then you 
kind of get the you know the ATC back on. It's like calm, cool, and collected at any given moment. You know, trying to just talk, you know, talk him, uh, talk to him in, in a really you know calm manner, and that that would de-escalate the situation. And at one point, he was actually on the line with with a Q four hundred pilot, um, talking about how to use the autopilot. And I don't know if they ever got him to activate it or, or whatever. That that'll probably come out in the investigation in terms of her, you know, recreation or everything. But it was just this amazing professionalism that was just absolutely unflappable what under what was a phenomenally, phenomenally intense situation. And and you know, usually you have these situations where X happens and it's over. And that's the end of the event. This was an unfolding thing that happened over over you know almost you know seventy five minutes, and it was also available for the entire world to listen to on top of everything else. So it's just an amazing thing, and 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 frankly, the the air traffic controllers did an unbelievable, unbelievable job making sure that this you know again was not escalated in a way you know that caused you know Matt you know public you know public hysteria or panic, but really you know, allowed this to, to end as, as positively as it probably was going to be able to be, you know, so here we are. It's an amazing thing. Yeah. I was really kind of amazed by how through all the interactions, anytime he said he wanted to do one thing, the air traffic controllers kept saying, well, why don't we turn a little to the right and and keep you over the water? So he really throughout the entire interaction was trying to keep the aircraft away from any possibility of harming any other people, which was a really, really well well done job. Yeah. And John, you, you mentioned it. It's unbelievable. And and I, I agree with you that the situation is unbelievable. But I feel like every time we, we talk about these situations where air traffic controllers are involved, it becomes even more believable about how and, and I feel like in, in a future episode, we should have an air traffic controller on to kind of explain, you know, some of the training that goes into these types of scenarios because air traffic controllers have said, we we train for these things and we hope we never use our training. Just, you know, how like, you know, pilots train for engine outs and they hopefully never have to use that training as well. But and it becomes, you know, more apparent that the training kicks in and it's it works because in any in any case, I mean, we're looking at, you know, go back to... The Sully on the Hudson, you know, the the US uh, 1549, where, you know, the controllers, like, I've got options. Do you do you want to go back? Do you want Teterboro? What do you want? Where do you want to go? Tell me what you want. We'll get you there. And then, you know, coordinating a response after that. So, I mean, it all of these incidents, it just kind of, you know, reinforces the idea that, you know, highly trained, very specific jobs and the training just kicks in and it works. You know, in a lot of respects, this is a another example of where quiet expertise makes this entire system run, and and quiet expertise makes the world run in a lot of respects. And you know, we've we've seen a devaluing of expertise um, in society, just certainly in the the debate that happens, you know, in in the in the town square, so to speak, whether it's online or whatever. But that expertise and professionalism are the things that make this world still run, whether it's a bus driver, an air traffic controller, or, a, you know, a police officer, a fireman, you know, or a rocket scientist relying on facts and data to make their decisions and do their job, you know, sometime, whether it's day to day or minute by minute. I mean, with the expertise of training is important and it's incredibly important to making sure that we still have a, an industry in aviation, but also a, a society that that functions and can grow and learn. And, and that these are all, you know, things that go go hand in hand with one another. 
John, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking with John Ostrauer, the editor-in-chief of the newly launched The Air Current, and we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes because John has written in the John a uh, few months now, not even. Yeah, have we had you on the show since you officially no. launched the site? I don't think so. No, no. This is my first opportunity. So yeah, The Air Current launched officially on the 9th of July. So here we are in mid mid August. So yeah, it's only been about five or six weeks. So it's been a busy month and a half for sure. Well, Ian, I'm a subscriber. Are you a subscriber? I'm actually working on getting us an institutional subscription. Oh. So we have to figure that one out. But if we can't do that, then I will definitely go and just you know piggyback off your login. Or no, no, I'll get my own subscription. That's what I'll do. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not sharing my Netflix password with you either. That's <laughs> it. Well, in any case, there's a lot of great news and analysis up on the air current, and John's doing some fascinating work. So we'll definitely have to have you back in the future. But I want to thank you again for joining us to talk about this. And you know, good luck with the air current, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Always great to be with you. I'm still trying to wrap my head around all of this. And I think it's going to be a long time before we really understand what exactly happened. And if we ever understand why it happened, I, th I think that'll be a very long time as well. But the FBI put out an update to their investigation because they're leading the investigation since it's a, a criminal issue. And they're continuing to work on things. They found the uh, flight data recorder. The statement mentioned that the cockpit voice recorder pieces were recovered. They didn't mention that can't be good. They didn't mention whether or not it was intact and readable, but hopefully it is. And they're continuing with, with their investigation. So hopefully I mean we'll we'll know more sooner rather than later. But as with all of these major incident investigations, they usually take, you know, twelve to eighteen months. So it could be, you know, more than a year before we know anything really. Right. It's uh strange I guess for us that the FBI is investigating rather than the NTSB, but of course that makes total sense because there's nothing really here for the NTSB to investigate. I was reading about this and in any criminal investigate where there's any thought that there might be a criminal action, and in this case it's very clear that there was, somebody stole an aircraft, the FBI becomes automatically becomes the lead investigative body. Well, in a lot of countries, the uh, criminal investigation actually, I believe, is the primary investigation. I think that was the case in uh, Germany with German wings where they basically look to prosecute people for incidents. And maybe it's France and maybe I'm getting Germany and France mixed up, but in a lot of countries, it's led as a criminal investigation. Right. And I know there, there's a legal, which I won't get into because I'm not exactly sure on the exact you know, minutiae. And if anyone is familiar with the some of these more criminal-leaning investigatory bodies, by all means, drop us a, a link at podcast.fr24.com so that we can um, link to those in future episodes if people are interested. Uh, and, and we'll try and put something in the show notes if we can find uh, a good explainer on the differences. But the, the US NTSB model is, is very interesting because they're, they're not ever looking for assigning criminal fault or, or legal liability. It, it's a purely safety-oriented investigation. But with the FBI in charge, obviously, that's a little bit different. So shall we carry on a little bit with planes doing what they're not supposed to do and, and talk about – I know it seems like a, a rash of ground incidents, but I mean these things happen all the time and we don't 
always hear about them. But there have been a, a couple that, that are a bit noteworthy. There was one in Istanbul last week where Royal Air Maroc 787 collided with a Turkish 777 in what is the second or third incident of its kind in fairly recent history. It's been happening a lot recently, or at least like you said, it feels like it's happening a lot. I have no hard data to back this up, but it does feel like it, it happened, you know, happened a little bit more often in, in recent past. But they uh from the ADSB data from the, the seven eight seven, it looked like they were on the wrong taxi line. And, and now I'm sure that they're undertaking an investigation to to understand that. But it was uh you know interesting to see it, it happen and it had happened in the same place last time too. So it might be uh, worth investigating, you know, repainting the lines or, or something. I don't, I don't know. Making them brighter. I don't know. Yeah. Making it change the color of the- Put some glitter on them or whatever you need to do to get people to stick to the line. You know what? I'm kind of surprised that paint on runways and taxiways and things like that doesn't have, you know, more of a, a shine to it. Reflective coat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of them do kind of have that, um, like that, I don't even know what you call it, but there's that- stuff they throw on crosswalks and things like that, where it kind of gives it a, a shine to it. Shine. No no reflectors like you might find in a uh, in a highway, though. Well, I mean, you know, but there's lights, but, you know, may, maybe reflectors would be good, too. Yeah. So that was one. Cathay, today, we're recording Wednesday, August 15th. Today in Rome, a Cathay 777-300ER was backed into a pole. So that's pole one. not good. The pole one? The pole one? Yep. 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 Sure did. Uh, tall steel versus composite wingtip, an easy an easy win for the pole. And then just this evening, uh, two United Airlines aircraft in Chicago decided that they wanted to high five each other uh, when they weren't supposed to. Airbus Boeing high five. Yes. So luckily, no one was injured in any of these three. But if you're taxiing an aircraft, maybe we need to you know go back to basics in in a few places. I'm just happy that none of these have been happening at JFK recently because we're we're well known for our ground collisions with buildings, other airplanes, poles, guardrails, equipment, jet bridges, buildings again, really anything. Mm-hmm. So this is a step up for us. <laughs> it's nice not to be in the news, isn't it? Yeah. We're in the news all the time for other nonsense, but not this for a change. Well, how about some nonsense that you have been in the news for? Okay. The Highfly A380 is in town. Hey. Well, isn't today? No, because it's 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 broken. It's broken and stuck in London. You know, let's unpack this little bit of information. Jason, as yeah. the one of the world's leading experts on the John Fitzgerald Kennedy Airport shenanigans, I'll let you explain. Oh, this if you're looking for a breakdown of shenanigans, you, you've come to the right place. So Norwegian, Norwegian, Norwegian. Since day zero has had major operational issues with their long haul flights. First, it was because their 787s weren't built yet. Whoops. So they had to lease all sorts of equipment from High Fly and Privilege Style and Euro Atlantic and really wherever they could find it. But then they finally got their 787s and but then they pushed them too hard. Turns out you can't fly airplanes for 21 hours out of the day because if something goes wrong down the line, it's going to ripple throughout your schedule for days and even weeks. And I saw that actually when I went out to uh, see you out in, where were we? Stockholm. Stockholm. My flight was 
three hours late because it was three hours late coming in. And that delay lasted for, for days, days and days. They just couldn't make it up. Well, they're having some issues with their 787-9s due to the very well-documented Rolls-Royce Trent 1000 issue that we've talked about a number of times on this show. So they've had to lease aircraft from wherever they can get it. And they were the first regular lessor of High Fly's A380, which again, we've talked about, haven't we? Yeah, we've covered and, and speculated and, and we're proven right. Right. So... As expected, Norwegian was the first operator of this, and as expected, it went horribly wrong. They Norwegian, they being Norwegian, operates to Terminal 1 at JFK, which on a good day is bad. It's over capacity, it's too small, the ramp is always blocked, it, it's a mess. I try to avoid Terminal 1 airlines being uh, the majority of which it's owned actually by Air France, JAL, Lufthansa, and Korean Air, which is a weird combination. But the terminal sucks. I, I avoid it as all possible. But apparently nobody at Norwegian or HiFi checked ahead of time to see if they could actually take another A380 during the 11 p.m. scheduled flight to London. And the terminal basically said, no, you're not doing that. Try at midnight. So the arrival from London gets in at midnight, and they scheduled the departure back out to London at 3 a.m. So they've delayed each flight each way four hours because they just can't fit another A380 at the gate. There's already an Air France A380, a Korean A380, and a Lufthansa 747-8, which take up all the A380 gates. Norwegian did a really piss-poor job at first communicating this to passengers because they, they just weren't ready for this. And the operation kind of smoothed out. They, they, today's flight, they notified passengers on August 3rd that their flight would be delayed until 3 a.m. It's now August 15th, so passengers now had a good amount of time to adjust their schedules and, and gripe that they're now leaving JFK at 3 in the morning to go to London, which is ridiculous. But the airplane's broken, so today's flight's canceled. And so with that flight canceled, I mean, who knows how long it'll be before you know they get back on onto schedule. Well, the good news is that I'm guessing the passenger load is only that of what a 787-8 or dash 9 would be, which is quite a bit smaller or a lower load than an A380. So maybe one day's flight could scoop up two days worth of 787s. That's a good point. So then the question becomes, who gets all of those suites? They finally have a thing for that. Now you can pay, I think, $400 to upgrade to the suites, but all you're getting with that is the suite. There's no upgraded amenities or anything along those lines. Yeah, but you know, $400, that's not yeah. terrible. I mean, when this first started happening, they were actually, their, their revenue management was, it, it couldn't handle what was going on. And they were actually selling premium seats, which ends up being old Singapore business class on the 380 for less than economy. So it was um, a little Oops. weird, but a good deal if you can grab it and don't care if you leave at three in the morning. So I want to stop here and say that we got an email from a listener who was interested in why it feels like that we were giving – we're always giving Norwegian a hard time. Uh, and I don't want to say that we have anything against Norwegian in particular. We, we're not like you know anti-Norwegian or anything like that. It just seems that they periodically, uh, every two weeks, happens to be when we record, have done something that they've 
brought themselves to our attention yet again. Right. And some of the things aren't their fault. Like they, they didn't cause the Trent 1000 issues. They're just, you know, predominantly affected by them because of the way they've structured their fleet. Right. And it, in this case, it's unfortunate. And actually, when, when they started off, it wasn't their fault either. Boeing was late delivering these aircraft. Operationally wise, sure, if one of their aircraft goes down, if something breaks on it and they have to give it some extended downtime, they have zero slack in the fleet. So however long that aircraft is broken for, their schedule is going to be out of whack. But these unexpected extended downtimes because of engine issues is is not their fault. Exactly. And there are a number of airlines that have no slack in their system. I mean, you know, we, we've talked about Spirit before where, I mean, if your Spirit flight is canceled, then you're out of luck for a couple days. Right. It's just uh, for a lot of people, Norwegian will work. If you absolutely have to be there tonight, Norwegian's not a good option for you. But again, this is – they they – uh, in this case, they probably there's some debate about should they have sent the A380 to JFK? And no, they shouldn't have. They clearly didn't do their homework or didn't care when they got the results of their homework and sent it to an airport that wasn't equipped to deal with it at their scheduled time. I don't know what the deal is with that. They won't tell us. I've, I've asked a number of times, but at the end of the day, <laughs> whatever. It is what it is. There you go. Let's take a quick break and come back and we'll talk about possibly uh, you know, somebody getting a new job in the desert. And we'll go through a bunch of the AvGeek notes that we've made over the past two weeks for new aircraft, new liveries, and things like that. So we will be back after a short break. And we are back and ready to apply to work for one of the world's Best, worst, we don't know because it's the world's most secretive airline. Shh, don't tell anybody. All right. It, it, technically, it doesn't exist or technically it exists, but not really kind of sort of. Do you want to explain this one? Because I'm going to go apply. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Get your uh, – dust off your resume All right. and uh, write up a cover letter. So I think we talked about this a, a while ago because they were hiring a flight attendant not too right. long ago. But now if you really, really want to see some stuff you're probably not supposed to see because it doesn't exist – you can apply to be the first officer, or they say co-pilot, of a certain Las Vegas, Nevada-based airline call sign. What's the call sign, Ian? Janet? Janet. Janet. Just another non-existent terminal, I think, is the... Well, sure. Sure. Why not? But <laughs> it's an airline that doesn't exist that brings people who don't exist to a base that doesn't exist out in the Nevada desert where there may or may not be aliens, or probably not, but... Probably really just secret military stuff and prototype airplanes that you're not allowed to know exist and can't ever talk about what you see. But if you would like to do that, if that sounds interesting to you and you have, uh, let's see, a minimum 3,000 fixed wing hours in seat with 300 in seat hours within the last five years, you can apply to be a first officer for an airline that doesn't exist. Well, then I, uh, I'm going to go apply. Do it. Wait, no, you don't meet I'm those. Not, I'm not qualified. You don't, you're not I'm qualified. not even remotely qualified. But if somebody is qualified, it sounds like a cool gig. Yeah. You get to fly You get to fly uh, 737-600s. That's right. Is it? Uh, so that's yeah, it cool. is. A, right. It's an NG, the little little 600. Yep. Mm-hmm. So if there are any bored WestJet pilots out there, you you might be flying a 600 if you want to fly out to uh, Nevada Desert. Why not? Yeah, or, or former uh, SAS pilots, I guess. Yeah, 
Well, current SAS pods are 600 know. these days. I know uh, WestJet, SAS, not many. Someone in the Caribbean, I think. I don't know. No, I mean that they own. I mean Boeing only sold like eight of them. Yeah, there are not. I think WestJet is actually the biggest operator, but who who knows? I I, I don't. If you, we could look it up and put it in the show notes, we could seven three seven six hundred operators noted. Hmm. The a the A three eighteen of the Boeing family. There you go. So real quick, let's run through uh, some of the things that have uh, flown for the first time, been delivered, painted, et cetera, et cetera. LL got their fifth 787. Yes. And it is in the retrojet livery. It's a cool looking airplane and it has just been delivered. And the registration is 4XEDF. So that's a one if you're looking to track that. Uh, the first Lufthansa A340-600 has been painted in the new livery. And we only call attention to this because there was a great tweet that I have to go back and find that someone posted a close-up of the particular craft describing the exquisite detail of the midsection of the aircraft. Needs more paint. So I, I, the, the A340-600 does look kind of interesting in the new livery. There's just a lot of there's a lot going on in between the well the the logo type and and the tail which is a lot of nothing nothing literally nothing Hong Kong Trader Cathay Pacific's flagship 747-8F is no longer the Hong Kong Trader it is now just the just the standard Cathay Pacific cargo livery which is thoroughly disappointing and hopefully they're going to paint another one in something because that was a really cool looking plane. Yeah, I hunted that one down for for a very very long time back oh, when yeah. I actually spotted because it always came into JFK in the middle of the damn night and I eventually got it when it came in and very delayed the middle of the day but that was uh, that was a special one simply because we could just never get it. So hopefully we'll get something else there. And then last, the mainland Chinese carriers got their first A350s. So Air China took delivery of theirs and Sichuan Airlines took delivery of theirs. And Sichuan's is in a special panda-themed livery. It's a very good livery uh, from an airline yeah. that historically has very not good livery. So that's definitely one to look out for. B301D and is the Sichuan one and Air China's is b 1086. Yeah. And uh, these aircraft had been sitting in Toulouse for months and months and months. I think John Ostrauer actually- Certification issues. Yeah, John yeah, Ostrauer yeah. actually posted an article back when he was at CNN about the issues holding up delivery. And a, a lot of the media material they released on 8818, which is apparently a lucky day in China, why they both wanted delivery on the same day. All the media pictures were actually copyrighted in 2017 of the interior of the aircraft. So they've been sitting there for eight, nine, 12 months, fully ready to go, but just couldn't. Just needing certification. Yep. And uh, this is some of yep. the first aircraft that actually have a letter in the registration for a Chinese aircraft, which is a very new thing. It's kind of weird to see that. Well, except for the B in the prefix, but the... Uh, but the, the following... Right. You know, uh, in the sort of prefix, uh, postfix, uh, I don't know, but yeah, China has, <laughs> is starting to do alphanumeric registrations. There you go. And on that suffix, I think we'll leave it. Ah, all right. A in a very interesting week for aviation. One that raises many, many more questions than than answers, and 
certainly will be following this one very, very closely to see what is learned in the investigation. And we'll be back in future episodes with much more, hopefully, as we learn more. I am Ian Pechnik, joined as always with Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening again. Mm-hmm.